Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Welcome to episode eight of Staying Alive with me, Jesse Smith, a podcast about creative people and how they navigate through the highways of the creative arts industries. Hello everyone, I hope you're all doing very well indeed. After the government announced this week that from July 4th the lockdown will be easing further, our bubbles can get bigger and pubs and restaurants can reopen. To many there may have been a collective sigh of relief that life is gradually getting back to normality. But for us creatives we are firmly stuck in lockdown. The government did introduce a so-called roadmap for the return of theatre and music, but with no timescale or news of additional funding, many of our beloved venues and theatres are under threat of immediate closure, and many people are at risk of losing their jobs. The Music Venues Trust also published a letter this week to the government calling for support to prevent the closure of hundreds of grassroots music venues, so things are looking pretty bleak. To discuss these important issues facing the arts sector, I was very grateful to be able to chat with Tom Watson, former Deputy Leader of the Labour Party and former Shadow Secretary of State for Digital, Culture, Media and Sport. He also had a major role in the News International phone hacking scandal by bringing events at the News of the World public. Tom retired from politics in November 2019 and is now the Chair of UK Music. UK Music are an umbrella-type organisation that represent the music industry by working with the Musicians' Union, Help Musicians, PRS, PPL and many other industry bodies and lobby the government on their behalf with a collective voice. Personally, Tom speaks openly about how he managed to reverse his type 2 diabetes condition through diet and exercise and published a book about it called Downsizing that we discuss in the pod. He was a true gent, and I really hope you enjoy our conversation. My guest for episode eight of Staying Alive is Tom Watson. I'm here with Tom Watson. Thank you so much for taking the time to do this, Tom. It's a genuine pleasure. Yeah. Um, Talk to me about how you fell in love with music in the first place. Okay. Well, I mean, music has always been the backdrop to my life. Um, You know, the good times, the bad times, there's always a song to play. And when I was a kid, I grew up in Kidderminster in the Midlands, not too far from where you're interviewing me now. And... It was in the 80s, and, you know, I, I, I was at the school sort of cohort that would have left at 16 in 1981, and no-one was getting jobs. So everyone was buying second-hand guitars and trying to be rock stars. And I, I was very strongly influenced by music culture then. You know, we wore Fred, our Fred Perry's every day. I wore Fred Perry's under my school blazer with a school tie as an act of rebellion. We worshipped the specials. Uh, we considered ourselves the elite of the music world because we were from the West Midlands and we had we had the specials. Uh, and 
it had always been with me. Uh, and, um, you know, I guess the specials were part of the reason I got into politics. And that got me into sort of uh, anti-racism campaigns around in the 1980s and late 1970s. And there was a lot going on. There was Rock Against Racism and all sorts of bands sort of making political points, really. Uh, and, and then I ended up at, as a photocopy kid at the Labour Party headquarters in London in 1984. And the then leader of the Labour Party, Neil Kinnock, realised that Labour had not really got an offer to young people. We'd, we'd done very badly in recent elections with first-time voters. And so he encouraged people from the music world to try and help us draft a, you know, an arts and culture policy. And that led to the creation of Red Wedge. And I was the youngest person in Labour headquarters by about 30 years. So they let me do the photocopy in for Red Wedge. And I got to meet people like Billy Bragg. And, you know, there were a whole host of people from that era who, who wanted a change of polit- political scene in, in London and in, in the country. And so my kind of political life has always been wrapped up in music life. And then for me, when I ended up being an MP, I was elected in 2001, I always felt I needed to give something back to music because I just... There were just amazing people who'd made such sort of, you know, iconic things in my life that I wanted to make sure we nurtured the next generation of musicians. Uh, and that obviously led to me, you know, when I left politics, trying to give something back as I'm currently the chair of UK Music. Um, mm. And so it's always been part of my life, you know. I mean, uh, it, you know, in the really dark moments when you're under real pressure, you know, music is always the thing that's centred me and brought me back, uh, and I couldn't do without it. And we're, we seem to be in one of those dark moments at the moment, obviously. We're sort of coming towards the end of it. We, we were just saying before we started recording that this is the first podcast I've been lucky enough to record in person. They've all been, before this, have all been um, via Skype or whatever. We're in a garden, socially distancing, of course. Um, but I guess my, my question is, how, how has COVID been for you personally? How, how have you got through it? And Well, you're, and it's great you say that because you're literally the first human being outside my family bubble that, that I've, I've met in, in over three months, right? Amazing. So, <laughs> so I feel a little bit stir-crazy. Uh, but it's, it's wonderful that we, even at, you know, with, what, about three metres apart, um, we can talk. But I... I've obviously been listening to a lot of music and actually, you know, like most people, lockdown has been very up and down for me. I've had good weeks and bad weeks. Mm, yeah, and, definitely. Uh, you know, in the bad weeks, I've been listening to a lot of blues, a lot of B.B. King. Uh, you, you know, I've been getting a little bit maudlin at some of the sentimental music. That's like, you know, a lot of John Martin. Um, but then in the good weeks I've been making playlists and sharing them with my friends and listening to new artists and you know I've been doing a lot of Tim Burgess's um, Twitter listening parties Mm. I I mean there was two wonderful ones we we obviously had Horace from the specials do the the eponymous specials album which which, I mean I, I literally had 50 mates doing the same thing we're listening to the album we're online on social media and you know, for 40 minutes on... I've only drunk two bottles of wine in three months and I drank one bottle of wine, listened to that specials album and I was, you know, skinhead moon stomping around the kitchen. <laughs> uh, and, and then the other, the other album was uh, when, they had, when they had Kevin Rowland and the members of Dexes on. Yeah. Uh, so, so, you know, there's 
a lot more music for much more of the time in my daily life mm. as a result of lockdown. And of course, in the job I'm doing as chair of UK Music, you know, an industry that is really hurting. I've Absolutely. been doing a lot of Zoom course, you know, trying to make sure that we we can do everything we can to support the British music industry, which is, you know, which is the jewel in the crown of Britain, in my view. You know, it's a £5 billion commercial music sector. A billion of that is live music. They went from a billion pounds income a year to zero. Mm. And, you know, that's a lot of jobs. There's 190,000 people in the UK alone who are sustained by commercial music. And... They're really hurting, you know. They 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 are literally trying to, you know, many tens of thousands of music makers and songwriters, creators who are worrying about how they're going to buy food at the end of the month. Mm. Um, so it's been a sort of a, a very tumultuous three months. One where I've, you know, felt the collective stress of an industry, but also used music to get me through the pressures that that brings. Yeah, that's the irony of it, isn't it? Because so many people at the moment are. Are reaching out for for music and I guess that kind of online community thing. I mean, I've, I've all my gigs were cancelled immediately, oh, you so know. Hard. So yeah. I went. I, I've been doing a lot of online streams and things like a lot of people have. Yeah. And actually, it's been lovely for me to see the kind of sense of community that's been built from people that have seen me in various different projects over the years that are now yeah. sort of getting to know each other online. It's it's bizarre, but I mean, how viable do you think things? like these driving concerts and things will be I I think look I mean it it doesn't it shows the unbelievable creativity originality Mm. and sort of can do mentality I mean you know the the music industry some people call it like a bit sharp right but there are a lot of very ingenious people who who are trying to give music fans what they want and they're trying to get around a lot of problems Um, I mean at the end of the day we need music venues to open mm. and we need people to take responsible decisions about um, you know how, how they interact with each other um, but the, the drive-throughs are, 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 are you know they're they're one part of that aren't they mm. um, but that's not going to sustain the sector no. we need a, we need a lot more and and actually there's a kind of um, you, you know the, the first sort of three four weeks when we went into full lockdown the focus of uh, the focus on the sector all, all the all the bodies that represent the sector were really trying to um, identify where there was immediate hardship and there were seven or eight funds set up mm. that, that tried to make sure that everyone was looked after even in small ways so help musicians great job musicians union all, all the different organizations were swinging in um, but then the second stage was you know how do we help the government do the right thing to uh, make sure that when you move from a sort of risk elimination stage, everyone in lockdown locked in their living rooms, to a risk mitigation stage where you, you know we're we're slowly lifting the lid on lockdown. Um, how how do we bring the sector back online? Mm-hmm. And there's an amazing amount of work gone on about how you can move people through buildings and all of that. It's very technical. Um, and then the third thing is actually even harder, which is a very honest conversation with the government to say, look, you, you know, uh, you've obviously got quite a few very influential 
areas of the creative industries that are always going to require public subsidy and obviously you you know they've got great access because this is this high art mm. but actually commercial music uh you, you know for the last half century has uh, has been the calling card of politicians around the planet everyone is proud of our bands and our music makers of course um you know we pay our taxes uh, we are we are the people that fund uh, the hospitals and the schools uh, but we're, become, we're coming out of lockdown later than everyone else for all the obvious reasons. So you need to help us get to a point where we can recapitalise the sector and get, you know, get our bands touring again and you know, get our, you know, get get food on plates for people for whom music is a, you know, a lifestyle, a vocation, part of their life rather than just a sort of profession. Sure. Um, and it, and it, you know, I feel very responsible, you know, and um, you, you know, there's there's not a great amount of power in that negotiated argument with the with the government, um, but we we are very clear that you know we we are we can help the government be all it can be, we can return back to profitability in that sort of classic sense. I mean, and there's a wider argument that as Britain leaves the EU. You know, we're about to negotiate 35 trade deals with, around the world. We, we think UK music can help open doors. We think we can go out there and, you know, our artists can talk to politicians and cultural leaders in all the nations where our music is loved. Mm. So it's, uh, you know, it's a big task. Uh, it's a big task, but, you know, we're doing everything we can. Absolutely. And the lifeblood of, of music and, you know, the places, the safe havens that that get artists to play for the first time are obviously the, the smaller venues, the independent yeah. venues. Um, what do you think we should be doing to put pressure on the government to get those back open as soon as possible? Because they're really struggling, aren't yeah, they? Yeah, well, we, we, I mean, you know, we work very closely with the Music Venue Trust. Um, and, you know, they've got 600-plus 600, 600 members. Uh, and no one venue is the same. Mm. But, of course, that is... You know, that is the talent pipeline, isn't it? You know, that is where artists learn to do what they do, how they commune with audiences, how they learn their craft, how they learn to perform, how they, you know, hone in on their technical skills of instrument playing. And without those venues, you know, the live sector is in very severe difficulty. Um, You know, because... Obviously, we're also famous for our festivals, and that's so important as well for yeah. our artists to break to break themselves, to, you know, to get a break. But music venues are twenty four, you know, twenty four seven, twelve months of the year, and you know, a good four or five hundred of them are saying they they are facing immediate closure because their revenues are now down to zero, mm. uh, and. You know, the furlough scheme helped and, you know, lo- some local authorities are helping with rent, but they are going to need help to get through the next 12 months. Because obviously when you're booking tours and booking bands, you know, you need you, you do need some advance notice to be able to do all that. Mm. Even though, you know, the venues tell me, the smaller venues say they think they could get artists on stage at 24 hours notice. Yeah. But for bigger tours... You know, it takes three months to put a tour like that together. Course, so yeah. so they, there's going to need to be assistance, I think. Mm. I, I sing for a, a project called The Classic Rock Show and we tour two months of the year. 
And uh, at the moment, the producers are saying, we think it's in January and February, but it might not be. You know, yeah. it's, it's just, it, it all seems to be like that. And, and uh, there's enough uncertainty in commercial music t- to not have it overlaid without political certainty. Mm. And, you know, we've got good relations with the government. And, and actually, you know, the team at UK Music, you, you know, they've, they talk to government departments every day. It, it's not romantic it's it, you know it's it's very detailed stuff about you know social distancing cost of this blah 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 sure. uh, but but you know they help with the furlough scheme they help to identify some of the uh, deficiencies in the furlough scheme that were affecting the sector uh, and at that level it's really important that the the, sec- the the sector has a voice but actually ultimately we're going to get to a point where the political you know politicians are going to have to decide that they want their national commercial music sector to survive and make some big decisions about how they help us help us transition back to profitability. Mm. And, you, and you touched upon uh, the B word uh, earlier, and I think a lot of my musician friends are really worried about um, the government's points-based system of immigration, which is going to change touring musicians coming in, and whether that will change us going to be able to tour in the EU. Yeah. Um, what, what do you well, think? Well, ironically, I mean, one of the things I'm also trying to do with, with the team at UK Music, uh, I mean, had we not had COVID, the Brexit settlement would have been yeah. number one on our agenda. Sure. I, I mean, being able to, you know, do a 20-country tour, um, you, you know as painlessly as possible on mm. bureaucracy and administration is a commercial imperative uh, because if you're a, if you're an artist touring and there's a sort of you know you're gonna have to spend five percent of your costs on doing visa applications yeah. to 20 different countries it's just the numbers aren't going to work um and so we're still engaging the government we're still saying to government look you this is imperative that when you in the eu negotiations let our you know let our bands to be our bands tour as friction free as possible mm. but also you know seize opportunities as well so we're, we're in bilateral trade talks with the USA you know how do we open up the American market for our touring bands and artists because it's quite difficult to get you if you've tried to get access it's mm. it's quite hard isn't it so so there are opportunities as a result of Brexit for the for the industry as well um, and you know we've been very clear with ministers what's required there and they understand that message uh, obviously they're in a negotiation but we're going to continue to help them in that negotiation and let them you know remind them how important it is to a taxpaying sector that that is that is you know not just helping from public services but actually you know, gives us world gravity and status i think <laughs> Um, I've had a lot of really interesting people on this pod so far, and I never never thought that I'd be interviewing a deputy leader of the Labour Party, you know, this quickly into my <laughs> podcasting life. So, thanks again. But um, it also, you know, this pod's called Staying Alive, and in the most literal sense, you know, you changed your life around and yeah. lost over seven stone in weight in a very short space of time. And I read your book Downsizing, which is brilliant, and I recommend people to go and buy it. Um, I guess what was the catalyst for you losing all that weight? And you look brilliant, by the way. <laughs> That's so kind of said. I've actually put a bit of weight on during the this How last six weeks. I've eaten too much cheese and not done enough exercise. But at the weekend, I'm back on track, right? And the good thing is, I feel like I'm. You know, it's nothing like I used to be. I, I mean, I was a. In a funny sort of way, it's an everyman story. You, you know, busy, middle-aged guy, 
steadily puts on weight for 30 years in a moderately high-profile, stressful job and was in denial about my increasing poor health. Uh, and a tiny little voice was saying to me, you're going to die. And the voice got louder. And I've got two young kids who I love dearly. And I didn't want to die early for them. So it, it was like it became an overwhelming voice where I realised I needed to completely change my lifestyle and, and commit to living. And um, I think one of the most poignant moments of the book for me, actually, was when you're, I think you're reading a story to your daughter and you're saying you can barely stay awake reading the book, yeah. you know, yeah. and that, that for me all broke my heart, you know, and... and yeah, there's, there, were, there were a hundred other episodes that didn't get in the book. Uh, I mean, I always remember my, my youngest, my daughter is my youngest, and she's Saoirse, and she, she would always do an impression of me, and she'd put a thumb to her ear and a, and a little finger to her mouth, like, this is my dad, and he's always on the phone. And, um, you know, when I began to get healthy... I mean, I, I'm a little bit of an obsessive character, so I read a lot of science and a lot of nutritional science and really, you know, worked my way through a whole new sort of era of new, nutritional papers. And I committed to a particular nutritional programme um, that at its heart eliminated sugar and, resi- and reduced complex carbohydrates and processed food. So sort of obvious things. Mm. Um, and I got to get well really quickly, uh, and you know my sleep got better uh, almost within weeks. Whereas before I get up, I, I, ended, I had type two diabetes. You know I get up in the night a couple of times to go to the loo, and the first thing I used to do when I woke up in the morning was scan my body to work out which bit of me ate the most. Uh, and after changing my diet, um, I mean it sounds silly, but within a couple of weeks. You know, I would just get an unbroken sleep. I'd wake up in the morning feeling very calm, you know, quite excited about the day. And, and, and so before I started to really lose weight, I got these very powerful cognitive gains that, that were, you know, very tangible. And, 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 and that's the sort of, you know, transformational thing for me that I don't want to lose. Um, the difficulty is... Um, I, I mean, I've said this before. I, you know, I was probably triggered about half a dozen times a day for about twenty years in politics. Like people would just irritate me, and I'd be quite snappy and pugnacious. As soon as I changed my diet and started doing a little bit of moderate exercise, I just became very chilled out. Mm. To the point where I, I think I basically became too chilled out to be any good at politics, <laughs> and and. It helped contribute to the decision for me to leave, you know, front front line, you know, fairly high profile political life. Um, but I'm not ungrateful for that, and I, I don't regret it. I I feel like I'm in a different stage of life. I always feel like a different person these days, mm. which is a weird thing to say, uh, and, it, and it and it's hard for people to sort of imagine that sort of sense of change. But it's what it is. And it's a cyclical thing as well, isn't it? The, you know, the one thing changes, something else improves. And I, you mentioned you did a lot of research and that you can tell in, the, in your book, you, you cite so many other books. And the, the one that I read and actually changed a lot, a lot to do in my life was the Matthew Walker, Why We Sleep oh, book as well. Yeah. Such an incredible book. And um, you touched upon it. And just 
just how sleep is so important and that obviously helps your weight loss and everything do you know what ironically sleep so so here's my thing that like very often people talk about the four pillars of health which is nutrition exercise well-being sleep and what matthew walker gave me was actually there's three pillars of health nutrition exercise uh well-being and they're built on a foundation of sleep because none of the other three are possible unless you get good sleep and and when you realise the, the science in the last 10 years behind sleep and what it does to our physiology if we don't get good sleep mm. is so dramatic that yeah, had I still been in politics and had Labour been in power, I would have wanted a national sleep strategy for the country. Right? Mm. It impacts on, you know, from, from um, soundproofing new houses so sure. that people can have, you know, light... You, you know, uh, you, you know, dark blinds on their windows in bedrooms to, to keep out the noise. To you know, an examination of rotational shift patterns. So the idea that you work a day shift one week and a night shift the other week utterly destroys your circadian rhythm mm. and it actually makes you unhealthy to the point where you know I think we need a national conversation about you know the hours that people work and how you can regularise sleep. Um, it's such an important part of our lives um, that people, you know, because you do it every day, people get used to it, but they could they could have so much more enriched lives with sleep. And for me, uh, I know I'm, I religiously monitor my sleep. I wear a sleep ring. Um, I, it, it, it gives me an approximation of my REM sleep, my deep sleep, my heart rate variability and my resting heart rate. And I know in the morning when I wake up what kind of day I'm going to have on the basis of the sleep I've had the night before. It, I, I feel so much more in touch with my physiology over it. Uh, and I think that longer sleep could be the cure to a lot of ailments that people are suffering in the UK right now. Mm, I totally agree. I totally agree. Yeah. And um, It's not great for the music industry, though, which is obviously very often like a lot of um, a lot of people well, are broken sleep. Well, it's a funny sleep. one. The, the, but the thing about that book as well is that Matthew Walker talks about um, people sort of genetically being wired to either be early risers or not you know yeah. and musicians tend to be the late risers do, yeah. you know yeah. so so for me going to bed or two at two or three a.m is not is not unhealthy because i just sleep later yeah. but then you know people start making noise at 9 a.m there's yeah. a there's a guy at the moment i think building an extension right behind my flat so yeah. he's always waking me up at eight o'clock in the morning yeah you know but it's yes yeah, it's, it's just a it's a different lifestyle isn't it but i think if like you say if you, if you can try to get seven to nine hours sleep i think it solves a lot of problems yeah. doesn't it yeah yeah and so how about your your kind of health regimes now what are you still on your kind of keto low carb diet yeah pretty much i, I mean i'm almost totally free of any refined sugar uh and i rarely eat you know pastoral you know white rice or uh you know industrially produced bread under lockdown I've had a little bit more bread, we, sourdough bread that we've made at home, which is mm. obviously better for you. Uh, but even for me, I'm so sort of, um, you know, I kind of know I'm kind of, you know, those complex carbs, I'm a bit intolerant to that. Uh, and it and it always affects my physiology. But I just love sourdough bread and yeah. really good butter. <laughs> so, so I kind of cycle in and out a bit now. Um uh, but I, I never eat processed food anymore. I mean, I had 20 years where I'd eat microwave meals or, you, you know, Deliveroo uh, was a godsend to me at one point. 
I, I, I was getting like, you know, sorry you've left us emails from Pizza Express. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you, you know, I've not drunk beer or eaten pizza or uh, big bowls of pasta for about three years, and I don't think I'll ever go back to it. Mm-hmm. Um, lockdown has allowed me to learn how to grow vegetables, so I, I'm, I'm quite excited because this weekend... I tried to turn the garden into an industrial facility to make courgettes and I got my first two courgettes off the plants this weekend and it's Brilliant. all it's all beginning to happen because I use I make courgette with a spiralizer as a sort of so I can make sort of pasta dishes that are pasta sure. with with courgettes and so I've kind of I've made some quite profound lifestyle changes that are kind of normal now uh, and even as I say this, I think there might be people listening to this podcast that think that's a little bit eccentric, but it, for me it works. <laughs> I, I guess the problem for for most musicians uh, is eating on the go, isn't it? And I mean, I, I, I'm kind of pescatarian and I remember coming back from gigs late at night and being starving and getting a chicken and sweet corn sandwich from, you know, that must so have been painful. full of sugar and, yeah. and you know, and... Um, I guess, yeah, from a personal level, what, what do you do when you're on the, on the go to make sure you keep up your healthy diet? So, so thankfully for me now, I mean, when, you know, when there's elections or campaigns on, I mean, I, I, I spent a lot of time sleeping on the back seats of cars, like musicians really. Yeah. So in an election, you know, you, you, I could be in three or four constituencies a day. And, you know, in a five-week election, you, You'd wake up in a Premier Inn and know, not know what town you're in. You're mm. so battered. Um, it's very like touring, actually. <laughs> and, and you'd, you know, you, I'd eat burgers and chips on the run. I, I mean, what I realised was that just made me so ill and so sort of tired. That, um, I mean, if I was desperate, I, I mean, there was a point where I would eat, you know, I'd buy two chicken sandwiches and just eat the chicken out of the middle and leave the bread. Mm. Um, these days, thankfully... I've got a little bit more time where I can plan ahead. So if I'm, you know, visiting friends, and, you know, I mean, that would be a great thing to be able to do every day, wouldn't it? Like when we get out of these current times, you know, I'll always make sure I, I take a sort of salad with me or something mm. like that. Um, so, so it does require more organisation. Just prep, yeah. <laughs> uh, and, you know, fridge management, I, I, it's very hard. You know, making sure I haven't got any tempting items anywhere near me because I'm still I still treat myself as a sugar addict Mm. so if you gave me a packet of crisps or a packet of chocolate hobnobs now if I ate one there'd be this internal dialogue wanting me to just keep going where I I would literally have to eat everything so it it, it is a kind of addict's mentality or a recovering addict's mentality Mm. and and it's all about the sugar Uh, and it's and it's a very very powerful drug um so when I did a lot of research for the book, you know, I realised that, you know, in the 50s and 60s, nutritional scientists were trying to, you know, they were literally monitoring brain patterns. And the, and the food production industry, which is a sort of global sector, you know, they've got a thing called the bliss point where when they're testing new foodstuffs, the right amount of fat, sugar and salt that lights up your brain like a Christmas tree... Uh, is when they realise they've got a product that they'll that they'll they'll be repeat purchasers and 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 you find yourself getting angry about that. But once you realise that, I mean, you realise that you're you, you're basically their target market. Um, you could get off it. 
and, and so there's whole aisles in supermarkets now that are just there's nothing on the sh- shelves for me it's empty mm. nutrients and I, I don't even bother going down them anymore because I know there's nothing I can buy uh, but you know the temptation at a very low level is still there and I still worry that I could end up you know getting back onto a treadmill of eating really terrible food mm. the sugar chapter I think was the one that um, shocked me the most actually in your book and some of the statistics and and um, the way that they kind of systemically get us hooked on this stuff from a young age, you know, it's incredible. I mean, they shouldn't call it nutritional science, really. I mean, there's a couple of things I argued in the book. I, I, it, I mean, it's a little bit unfair on the scientists in the sector that are funded by the food production industry. They don't deliberately try and make crappy food that makes us ill. But that's the net effect of a sector where, that has predominantly been industrially funded for years. We could talk about the lobbying, which is worse later, but they... they one of the th- arguments I gently made, I do think there is a real case now for um, government to intervene and fund independent nutritional science research um, because, it, it, you know, w- when the funder has an interest, you know, if the funder is McCain chips or Coca-Cola, it, you know, it's very hard for there not to be an influence on objective science. Mm. Um and then when you also flip it, I, I, I met a really amazing woman called Marian Nessel, who, who was an octogenarian, East Coast of America nutritional scientist, who'd actually for a time been surveilled by representatives of Coca-Cola and was mentioned in the WikiLeaks dump uh, wow. in the Hillary Clinton campaign. And such a powerful figure was Marian. She told the truth about fizzy drinks. And... When she came to London, I had the privilege of meeting her, and and she sort of estimated that Coca-Cola have spent a hundred million dollars lobbying uh, governments around the world to reduce measures, to to dilute measures to reduce sugar intake, uh, and still, you know, a full can of ordinary Coca-Cola carries more sugar in it than the government's recommended daily allowance for an adult. And yet kids, you know, very often there's kids drink a can of this stuff every day. So, mm. um, you know, no wonder we've got a third of our kids leaving primary school who are overweight or obese. Mm. And we've had huge increases in teenagers getting type 2 diabetes. I mean, it, we are literally poisoning our children with this stuff. And it's so normal for everyone because it's on the supermarket shelves that we've not really taken a step back to think about do we really want to do this? And that's the interesting thing about COVID, isn't it? Especially with Boris Johnson's condition. Um, you know, there's an opportunity now to reset the diet a little bit, mm. to, to have a national conversation about some big issues, you know, food supply, food production, retail offers, marketing, advertising, y- you know, health education, what the public, you know, the nutritional plate, the food we put in ourselves, are we giving the right advice to citizens? How do we support people to sort of recalibrate their lives? Mm. There's a whole load of opportunities there that. I think you know could really positively change the country with with a bit of bold thinking, but not not with a great cost to the taxpayer. Well, the rhetoric definitely is that people are cooking more at home and you know eating fresh fruit and veg and stuff. I hope so, but um, we shall see, I suppose. But I guess what would your advice be for for anyone that is struggling with their weight? I know it's not a one size fits all. And yeah, I, I mean the one thing I'd say is um, y- y- you know sadly. In the current climate, um, you've got to do a bit of joining the dots um, because 
you, you know, the government give you one-size-fits-all nutritional advice. And I just think for people with type 2 diabetes in particular, which is about 3.5 million people in the UK, the government's advice is wrong on the level of carbohydrates. Mm. You have. It makes them poorly. Um, so, you know, understand your own condition and do a bit of reading into it. I mean, there are some great science journalists that give you objective advice. I, I was... Uh, I was very, in the early days of my sort of reading, I, I was greatly influenced by the work of Michael Mosley. And I was, luckily I read one of his books, and the foot, the, I read it on a Kindle, and he, and he does very good footnotes, so he links to the science in every sentence mm. he makes. So I then went and looked at the science papers in a slightly obsessional way. And then I read um, Asim Mulhotra's, Dr. Asim Mulhotra, a big cardiologist. He wrote a book about the Mediterranean diet, he called it the Piopi diet. He, he looked at sort of places around the world where there were super centenarians who, uh, and their lifestyle and their, and what they put in themselves. Um, and he, so there are places you can go to find a, a way of changing your lifestyle. Um, but there's a lot of controversy as well. There's like, you know, these, these nutrition battles are being fought out over continents. The one thing that pretty much unites nearly everyone other than the executives of Coca-Cola, is that we have too much refined sugar in our lives. Mm. So if you want to make one step early, it's significantly reduce refined sugar. Uh, and, and, and even doing that will have a huge impact on your well-being. Well, congratulations. I think it's pretty inspirational what you've done. So do people say that to you? Congratulations. Yeah, some do. <laughs> I, I mean, actually, with the book, um, I was a little bit... I wasn't sure about the book because... I, I realised if I didn't want to preach to people, I didn't want to tell them what to do. Uh, I, I've had thirty years of telling people what to do as a politician, mm -hmm. so I did two things in the book. I, you know, it's kind of like two little books, really. I, I wanted to just explain it, my own journey, and I, I needed to show how, you know, shamed I felt really by the end of it, and how sort of how my self esteem had fallen because I, I wanted to say to people, you're not on your own. And I know a lot of people say you're lazy and you're slothful, and, uh, you know, but the system is actually stacked against you. It's very hard to sort of find your way through this. And I went through it, even though I was in a moderately sort of powerful position in life. And then the other bit is, you know, angry at the institutions that are not doing enough about it. Mm -hmm. um, and so there are millions of us out there, but there's a, there's a massive opportunity. You know, if you look at... The research shows that people who are currently have type 2 diabetes, with a slight change in their nutrition and a little bit of increase in just living more active lives, the research shows that at least half of them could go into remission, reverse their condition, get off their meds. That's such a liberating thing. What, what, in the life of that individual, what that means is their cognitive functioning improves. They wake up bright. They're, they're less sad. They don't get tired all the time. They don't fall, fall asleep mid-afternoon. They, they don't go to the toilet twice in the night. They, their lives are transformed. It's liberating for them. But there's a national interest as well because I think we can improve the cognitive firepower of the nation by just getting more millions of people to think sharper Mm. in their daily lives, which is good for the economy. And there's a taxpayer interest because 10% of the NHS budget is spent on treating type 2 diabetes. Yeah. You know, we've got surgeons who are amputating about 150 feet and toes a week in relation to type 2 conditions. If you can halve that, 
think about the benefits to mm. towns and cities up and down the country. It's a massive, it's a massive thing to do, but it's really doable with political leadership and will. Uh, there's a lot of vested interests that need challenging, but I, I think I think we're at a point in history where, you know, maybe this is the time to do it. Thank you so much, Tom. I'm not going to keep you too much longer. There's one, uh, one more thing I'm, I'm going to ask you to do. That I ask everyone who's been on the pod. It's a section I call One Night Only. <laughs> that, sounds, that sounds dodgy. And uh, <laughs> basically, I don't know if you're a football fan. Are you you're into football? I watch a bit of football. Yeah, right? so ba- basically, you've got a choice of either a five-a-side football team or a super group that you could be in for yeah. one night only. So it could be any musician, live or dead in your group, or it could be any footballers from history in, yeah. your, in your team. Who would you choose and which, which one? I'd be in a band. Um, I, 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 you caught me on the hop, but I would... There's people I would have loved to have met. I would have loved to have met B.B. King. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, The the most beautiful voice of the last century and the most troubled musician, I think, of the last century was probably Nina Simone. Mm. And I would love to have met Nina Simone, although that would have been a very dangerous thing because obviously she was a a real sort of challenging human being, but quite brilliant. Mm. I, 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 I don't know how B.B. King and Nina Simone got on. <laughs> and there's a guy I met, his stage name is Fantastic Negrito. And he's a, he's, an, he's a sort of, in his early 50s musician, from the wrong side of the tracks in Oakland, who uh, I randomly went to see at Dingwalls a couple of years ago. Mm. Uh, and it was probably one of the best gigs I've ever been to. And he's seen life and learnt life, and he's a wise man, and he's still learning. And he is the best stage performer I've ever seen, and it was one of the best gigs I've ever been to. He went on and won a Grammy. I follow him on Instagram. He's growing vegetables. He's making music in what looks like his garage. So I'd love to. I'd love him there as well. I don't know how he'd get on with Nina and BB King as well. And then, of course, I haven't even got into. You know the entire cast of the Clash, uh, <laughs> so I'm building. I'm genuinely building a supergroup there, and it, yeah, if I can persuade Terry Hall and Horace Panther and the rest of the specials on stage, God knows what the music would be. But wouldn't that be an ensemble? It would um, be a great gig. What would you do in the band? I, I, um, I'm hopeless on all musical instruments. I'd probably, if I could play, I'd probably want to play lead guitar. Uh, you, you know, but I, I couldn't play. I, I mean, I'd, I'd have to be like, you know, I'd have to be a roadie. <laughs> a bit I, I they're they're just as necessary. They're more, they're very necessary. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, on football, I, I mean, music's more important. But football's always been, you know, I've, I've always it's been part of my life. I, I used to... For a brief period as a teenager, work for the Kidderminster Harriers Football Club, which is very dear to me because it's my hometown team. Brief episode in the league, and uh, but the, the the coolest thing about this club is Gil Scott's Heron's dad used to play for them, and Celtic Football Club always claim is claim him as theirs, but he played for the Harriers as well, and I just think you. Know, a figure like Gil Scott Heron to have his dad play for my football team is an amazing thing. It's amazing. (laughs) 
Thank you so much for doing this. I really, really appreciate it. Thanks, and, um, and good luck with the podcast. Thank you. So there we have it, another episode over. To me, it's great to know that UK Music have our best interests at heart and will be doing everything they can to help us get back rocking as quickly and safely as possible. Thanks again to Tom Watson. I'd also like to give a special mention of thanks to my great friend, Tom Wilcox. Next week's guest is one of the greatest sidemen in the history of rock and roll. He was longtime guitarist for David Bowie, John Lennon and Yoko Ono, and has also collaborated with the likes of Robert Smith, David Coverdale, Glenn Matlock and Jim Diamond. So make sure you hit subscribe and look forward to my conversation with Earl Slick. You can also find us on Facebook at Stayin' Alive Pod, and you can go one step further and head over to Apple Podcasts and give us a five-star review. This was a Jesse Smith production. Music by Neil X, Mark Garfield, and me. If you or your business is interested in sponsoring the show, or if you'd just like to say hi, you can get in touch by emailing stayinalivepod at gmail.com. I'll be doing a very special live stream on my YouTube, Jesse Smith UK, on Friday. So hopefully see you there. But until then, try and stay alive, eh? Tell me, tell me, tell me.